0: hey, do you know Monty Williams? (laughs) For some of us who love the NBA over here, I'm kind of disgusted at the NBA at the moment. They're creating a super team in New Jersey and it's driving me nuts. But anyway, you know who Monty Williams is? Monty Williams was a great basketball player for the University of Notre Dame or Notre Dame University or college or whatever it's called for Notre Dame. And he became an NBA player, and so you know what NBA players get a lot of, right? Money. Very wealthy guy, of course. He played five NBA teams from 1994 to 2003, Monty Williams. Then he became a coach, assistant coach, associate head coach, and a head coach. He was the head coach for the New Orleans Hornets, or Pelicans, from 2010 to 2015, he was on the uh, United States national team and his assist, as an assistant under Mike Krzyzewski of Duke. He's worked for, as a vice president for the basketball operations for the San Antonio Spurs. And just recently, he was hired as the head coach of the Phoenix Suns, Monty Williams. He's got five beautiful kids, wonderful guy. And he's a Christian, born-again believer. In 2015, 2016, he was the assistant head coach... Of the Oklahoma City Thunder, Monty Williams. Well, on February 10th, I believe it was 2016, might have been 2015, his wife was killed in a car crash when a driver crossed the center lane and struck her car. And apparently he was going at a high rate of speed in the 90s. Monty Williams, a Christian guy, uh, got up at his wife's memorial service, eulogy, and gave a eulogy, of course, and he said these words, and he said them without choking up, which might be more than I can do. He said this, everybody's praying for my family, which is right, but let's not forget there were two people in this situation, and that family needs prayer as well. Our family has no ill will towards that family. In my house, we have a sign that says, as for me in my house, we will serve the Lord. We can't serve the Lord if we don't have a heart of forgiveness. That family didn't wake up wanting to hurt my wife. Life is hard, very hard, and that was tough, Monty Williams said." But we hold no no ill will towards the Donaldson family, and we as a group, brothers united in unity, should be praying for that family because they are grieving as well. (laughs) We've been talking about (laughs) a dinner conversation that Jesus is having with a number of different people. When he shows up at a party... (laughs) He doesn't just sit with one people and be a clique with that person. No, he talks with everybody at the party, the host, the guests. Many of these parties in Israel happened outside, like sort of like in a patio area. And so even the passerbys, he directs some conversation to them. And of course, he came with some disciples. And he talks to them. And so all of his conversation that's recorded there is spiritually provocative. In other words, he provokes people to spiritual things. Jesus doesn't waste opportunities. He's always on mission. I told you or read to you, didn't I, at the beginning of this, the mission of Jesus Christ to save men and women, boys and girls, from their sins. He tells us that all throughout the Gospels, all throughout the writings of the Bible, all throughout the New Testament. We're told that the main central mission is not to make your life great. Just got to be honest with you. Is not to make you healthy and wealthy and wise, although those are some byproducts sometimes. No, the main mission of Jesus Christ was to save us from our sins. And so when he gets to a party, he doesn't waste time. He doesn't talk about the sports scores or the weather. I mean, maybe he did. He was naturally supernatural. But I mean, you know, he gets around to the real business of life. And that's sharing the good news that he brings. And so for the last several weeks, we've been moving through that. You could see that this dinner starts at the beginning of chapter 14 of the book of Luke. He was invited into a house of a Pharisee. A Pharisee, many of them, most of them, including these who invited him, were adverse to him. They sought to kill him, and yet he's invited to the party and he doesn't turn down the chance to go. And he's told us some things, hasn't he? He's related to different people, but we've been in on it through the gospel here, or through the writings, that we're to take the lowly place and the parable of the great supper. If some are invited, go back out into the highways and byways of life and invite the other ones, the least and the lost and the lonely, the people who recognize their need for a savior. That's what he told us. He told us what it's, how radical it is to follow him. We forsake all. No idols before him. We love the Lord our God. We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. He even goes so far, don't freak out about this, to say, unless you hate your family, you're not a follower of me. But what he's saying is, if you read the Bible, he's not saying you hate them like you disrespect your family. No, the Bible tells us to love our family But he makes the point, doesn't he, that he's to have an unshared love with you. You don't share that love with any other. (laughs) If you're married, you know that. I mean, I say I love you, but I love somebody else, my wife, and hopefully she loves me in a different way, right? It's an unshared love. But I love you. And he says, don't lose your salt, He tells us that he seeks after people and that when people turn and repent, he, the Father, will come and welcome them back, run to them and prepare the fatted calf. He commends the people of the world for being shrewd in their businesses and things. And he says to the people in the Christian life, you be just as shrewd but for the things of the Lord. Kind of what I was saying about the blessing store wasn't to be cranky. It's to get it so we can operate it in an orderly way so we can be effective in ministering the gospel. You see? He talks later last week, wow. He talks about the evil of loving money. Now, I didn't say love money because the Bible never says that. Money money you need, but if you love money and make it an idol, it's disastrous because there's something about money. It's called filthy lucre. I don't even know if I know what lucre is, but it just sounds bad, doesn't it? It's called filthy lucre in the Bible. And he said, watch this. Don't covet. Don't be that. And the consequence of coveting money is that those who put idols like money above Jesus himself go to this place called Hades that will be hell. And if you don't know what I mean by that, get the tape from last week. And he talks about this, about this place called Abraham's bosom, and this place called Hades. And there is a gulf between this place and the Old Testament saints, those who believed God that a Messiah was coming. They went to the place called Abraham's bosom. But those who coveted other things and lived their lives for self, they went to the place called Hades. And there was a great gulf between the two. And yet the people in Hades had consciousness. It's not soul sleep, folks. And the Bible tells us in another place that it's once to die and then the judgment. Your fate, so to speak. We don't believe in fate, but you know what I'm saying. Your direction... Where you're going to go, Hades or Abraham's bosom is fixed at the moment you die. There's no purgatory, folks. And that Jesus, when he died, the scriptures tells us he descended. What did he do? He set the captives free in Abraham's bosom. So now the captives, the believers are with Christ, but there's still this place called Hades, the holding place of the dead, This is real, folks, and there's a lot of people in Christendom, you say, my goodness, this guy's full of bad news. There's a lot of people in Christendom who won't teach about this because they don't want to offend you. But it's real. Well, that's where we left off. And I'm so mad at myself. I've been awake at night this week because I forgot the punchline last week. (laughs) And the punchline is this. It's found in Romans and a couple other places. Here's the punchline. It's really easy to remember. Every one of us sitting in this room and everybody on earth, the Bible tells us we will give an account for our lives. And you have this thing that you must remember, and that's this. For those who receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior... You receive his righteousness, oh man, what a blessing, blessed doctrine that is, so that when you die here physically, God the Father sees you as perfectly righteous, which means you come to live with him. You'll never be judged on whether you get to be with him in heaven or not, but you will be judged, you will give an account on the things the Lord has blessed you with, how did you use them. That, that judgment is called the Bema Seat Judgment. You can find it in 2, or 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and other places. It's called the Bema Seat Judgment. You and I, if we're Christians, will be at the Bema Seat Judgment. But there's another judgment I don't want any of us to ever be at. It's called the Great White Throne Judgment. That's in the last part of the book of Revelation. That's the judgment... For unbelievers. But see, God is so perfectly fair and righteous. You know what He says at the Great White Throne Judgment? And He doesn't say it like I would say it. I'd be a real smart aleck about it. I told you so. I've been warning you forever. No, here's what God does He gets open the books of your life. And here's what He says I'll judge you fairly. If you can measure up to the holy standard in which I've set, You can be admitted to heaven. But here's the problem. None of us can do it. We have a sin nature, listen, and we've chosen to sin both so that we fall short of the glory of God. You will give an account, all of us, either at the great white throne judgment, beam seat judgment. Everybody tracking with me? Okay, that's important for what we're about ready to see. So he says... Here in verse, or chapter 17, he turns his eyes in the dinner conversation after he's given this thing about giving an account about Abraham's bosom and Hades, and he says to the disciples. Now he's talking to his followers, and he says this. He doesn't say it here, but it, it's implied. Hey, guys, gals, disciples, we're on mission I read you the mission earlier, right at the book, end of book of Luke. The mission is, I want you to go make disciples and tell them that they're sinners, just like you're a sinner, and they need a savior. They need my righteousness. And I want you to make disciples. Do it first wherever you're planted, then go a little farther out, then take it to the whole world. That mission that he gave to these disciples is our mission. It hasn't changed. And so he says to them, recognizing the reality of this battle that we face, he says this. It's like he's given you disciples, these disciples and us, these tips for what's coming. He says this. It's impossible that no offenses should come. Now, remember, he's talking to his disciples. That no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, And seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Time out. Remember Monty Williams. And he goes on. (laughs) If you were sitting there at that dinner, what would you say? You'd say exactly what comes in the next sentence. (laughs) And the disciples said to the Lord, man, Lord, you're going to have to do it. Because that sounds like I don't think I can do it. Increase our faith. Increase our faith. And so the Lord says, listen, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say this to the mulberry tree. Be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drink or drunk? And afterwards, you will eat and drink. Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise, you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do wow let's unpack this let's unpack this he says to us and to them he says to them first but he's telling you when you become a christian and you surrender your life to jesus christ you will be made whole how do i know that because a little longer here, later on here, in verse 19 of this very um, uh, chapter, the one leper who was healed out of ten, only one of them came back, and he says, go your way, your faith has made you well. The word there is whole. W-H-O-L-E. Now think about it. They all were healed only one came back and recognized him as Savior, one was made whole. It was great that they were physically repaired or healed, but Jesus was telling those lepers, and I don't know if we'll get to it today, that's why I didn't read it. (laughs) He was telling them and us, the most important thing about you is not the putrid, runny sores on your nose and your arms and your fingers falling off i know that's horrible but there's something even way more horrible than that jesus said and that is your sin problem and my sin problem you and i and we need to be made whole number one well go back it's impossible that no offenses should come turn with me just over to romans Chapter 14. Verse 12. I'll read it to you because I I read this scripture earlier, just so you know the context. So then each of you are going to give you an account of himself to God. Do you know that? You're going to uh, give an account. If you're hot, somebody can turn on those back air conditioners or open the window and don't feel bad about doing it. That's a hint, I'm hot. (laughs) But if you're not, that's okay. But listen to this, Romans 14, 12. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Do you know that we live in the reality? Folks, if you're here today and you have no idea whether you're going to heaven or not, the Bible says you're going to give an account to God. But hey folks, if you are here and you know you're going to heaven by the precious blood of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, you're going to give an account also, not for entry into heaven, but for the things that you do. But look what he says in verse 13. Don't miss it. Therefore, let us not be judging one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Why do you think he's saying that? Because people do it. Which means... I don't care where you go to church or what you do for a job or anything. You're going to get offended. And not only that, you're going to offend others. I might have offended you here today when I was goofing around about the blessing store. I should watch that. I'm serious. I should watch that. I'm, by nature, a very smart like dude. But, but, but the point is, you're going to get offended. And, it, you know... Somebody might eat your coconut donut in the morning. Somebody might sit in your seat here at the church. Somebody might not smile at you, but maybe even worse, somebody may gossip against you, stab you right in the back. Maybe it's here in the sanctuary, or maybe it's at the church at large, or maybe it's out in the world. Listen, offenses are coming. That's what he's telling his disciples. You're going to be offended if you think that you surrender your life to Jesus Christ and now you can just sit on the couch and all your ducks are going to be in a row for the rest of your life, well, you got another thing coming because the Bible tells us we're now in a war. And we're in a war for the souls of men and women, boys and girls. And this can be offensive. Hey, by the way, do you know this? That the Bible tells us that Jesus, in a good way, Can be an offense. The word there means stumbling block. Jesus can be an offense. Why can Jesus be an offense? Jesus can be an offense because when the gospel is preached, it's offensive to people. You know why it's offensive? Because before you come to know the Lord, you know what you say to yourself? Well, I'm not so bad. I didn't do like others did in heinous war crimes, or I'm not a serial murderer, or I haven't committed a sex crime or anything. I'm not so bad. And so at your humanness, the gospel strikes. And many people don't want to humble themselves. The Bible says God gives grace to the humble but opposes the proud and say, I need a savior. Thus, Jesus becomes a stumbling block. The Bible tells us that in several places. It also said it's a stumbling block to the Jews. Remember that? Okay, you you understand. The word here, offense, stumbling block, like a stick that set the trap, you know, when you put the stick in and the trap comes. That's what this word means. It can be a good thing, but it also can be a bad thing. Uh, There are several places that tell us about this being a stumbling block to others, or offenses can come to others, even in the church. Do you know that even in our liberty... We all love to read the doctrines of liberty in the Bible. You, you read in 1 Corinthians 8... You read in 1 Corinthians 10, you read in the Romans uh, areas about the liberty, the law of liberty, now that I'm a Christian and I've received the grace of God. I have liberty to do this or to do that. I'll give you a couple buzzwords here. Drinking, that's a huge one in the Christian church. Big debate about whether I can drink or not. Dancing, used to be, right? Baptist church, oh, I know one thing. We square danced here two Christmases ago. So we ain't against it, but anyway, <laughs> but but right, dancing, wear your hem, what the people wear, all these sorts of things, and 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 and, and Jesus tell, or, or excuse me, Paul tells us through the uh, scriptures in the New Testament. He said, "Watch out, folks! If you have liberty in an area, I'll bring up one right now. You'll all hate me for it. Masks. It's dividing the church." So dumb. I'm more tied to this little thing than I am my love for you as a friend. That's what the Christian church has been screaming through masks to me. I'd wear a bunny suit up here if it meant I could be with you guys. And I get it. I I understand the issues. But here's the point. Paul tells us, take heed lest your liberty in Christ be a stumbling block to anybody else. Now think about that. I have the liberty to eat this certain type of food. You're convicted that we shouldn't eat that type of food. I come over to your house, I pound my fist on the table and say, serve me the food, brother. We can eat that stuff. Or do I say, man, if that's going to stumble you, that's no problem. I won't eat it. That's what Paul is saying. It can be a real stumbling block, your liberty, is everybody tracking with me. How about this? How about this? In 1 Peter 2.8, it talks about being disobedient to the word as a stumbling block in the church. I'll give you one example, gossip. Is gossip big in the church? Yep. Is it a sin? Uh Uh-huh. The Bible says that gossip can be a stumbling block for the other people you're gossiping with. Of course, it's the person you're aiming the gossip at. That really stumbles because it hurts. You're wounding them. But the people who are around you going, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're stumbling them too. So what I want you to see here, and we could go on and on. There's other stumbling blocks. It doesn't say this in James 3, but your words can be a stumbling block to people. You can set a fire in people's lives through the words that we say to people. I better watch it up here, huh? I better watch it up here in the announcements. But you see it? You can really set a trap for people and take them down the wrong road of hurt and disgust. And listen, here's the point, misrepresentation of God to the people. You ever heard somebody say, oh, you call yourself a Christian and you do that? Well, now, you don't have to be perfect because you aren't perfect. Jesus is the only one that was perfect. When we make mistakes, admit them and go on, right? You're not perfect, and yet... You don't want to be a stumbling block to anybody, correct? And not only that, you don't want to have people stumble you. But yet Jesus said, if you're a disciple of me, there will be offenses. You'll give them and you'll receive them. And it's a dead, solid lock promise. There's going to be tribulations. There's going to be trials in this world. He tells us this. Well, so it's impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. In other words, we know that there's, the the word in the Greek means something in the trap, to set the trap, but don't you be the one that does it. (laughs) Woe to you through who they do come. It's better for him or her if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea, then that he should offend one of these little ones. Everyone always talks about this in the realm of little kids. And it may mean that in some way. But really, when little ones is referred to in the Bible, you know what it's referring to, right? Christians who are just starting out and are not mature. Can you imagine? (laughs) Can you imagine, seriously, I know some of you, and if you're one of them who say this, then watch yourself. Can you imagine if you saw me coming out of Duffy's beer joint with, you know, four cases of beer on a Friday night and vodka? And you were out in the parking lot and here I am, you know, doing what I'm doing and you come out and I say, hey, how you doing, man? Going to have a big party down at my house for my birthday or whatever. I have liberty to do it. How would that go over? Right? I have liberty. I have liberty to do this. Now, I'll just tell you a little secret about me that's not so secretive. I don't drink. But if I was doing something, whether it was that or this, to just be out and flaunting it in public to stumble all of you, I don't want to do it. Now, I pick drinking as an example. There's a million of them. I don't want to be the one who snaps the trap on you. And Jesus says, that's not a good place to be. Don't do it. He's telling his disciples, as you move along in life with the mission in mind, remember, disciples, we have a mission, there's going to come offenses. You'll be offended, they'll be offended. But don't be the one, as much as it's up to you, the Bible tells us this in Romans, I think it's Romans, wherever, as much as it's up to you, live in peace with all men. Do whatever you can to live in peace with all men. Now, that doesn't mean you don't shut up and say the truth, that's not, or you shut up and say the truth, that's not what I'm saying, no one's saying that. But as much as it's up to me, live in peace with all men, Bible says that, I'll forsake my liberty in Christ for you. Would you do it for others? That's what he's saying right here, because you're going to get offended. You're going to give offense. You're going to receive offense, but don't do it. Don't be the one. Take heed to yourselves. If a brother sins against you, and you're just like, come on, man, here it comes. You love this word. So do I in my competitiveness and flesh without the Lord in my life. Rebuke him. <laughs> ah, now we're getting somewhere. Somebody offends me, look what the Bible says, I get to do, I get to rebuke them. The problem is you don't know Greek, and neither do I, so I had to look it up. Guess what that word rebuke means? To lay upon another honor. You're like, what? How, How can that mean that? If your brother sins against you, lay upon him honor or her honor And if he repents, forgive him. What do you mean rebuke, lay upon the honor, or lay upon him or her honor? Well, let me take you somewhere. Matthew 18. What are we to do if somebody offends you in the church? What are we to do if somebody offends you or commits a sin? Time out, folks. The Bible also says, I, if you don't hear this, I want you to hear this one. Love covers a multitude of sins. Come on, man. If I sit in your seat at church, love covers a multitude of sins. That ain't that big a deal. If I eat your donut at church, co- come on. If I park in your parking space at church, you know. I, I know to some because you know, but but you know what I'm saying. No, the offenses that are that we should lay honor upon another, are serious offenses. Some things you just do out of love. You love people, and so you know they didn't mean it or whatever. So you don't have to rebuke somebody because they sat in your seat on Sunday. We have people in the church, I'm talking the church at large, do stuff like this. You know, man, I mean, the you, you, when you smiled at me on Sunday, only half of your lip was going that way. The other half was going that way. And I'm telling you, it really tore me up. What? I mean, people say stuff like this. They they get offended by things like this. Lover covers a multitude of sins. So what we're talking about here is a sin, man. They've gossiped against you. They've said something about you. It's something that's hurtful to you. Not just they took your seat at the Church. Everybody good? Well, if that happens, how do we lay honor upon somebody? If there's a serious thing, how do we lay honor? Jesus tells us in Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother or sister sins against you, lay honor upon him. Go talk to him about it. Remember your brothers. We're in Christ. If it's somebody out in the world, they might not understand it, but the honorable thing to do is to go and talk to them about it. See, we live in a culture of texting and social media. We think we can just text, hey man, what'd you do today? When you get a text like, what'd you do to me today? When you get a text like that, boom, you, everything just goes up, right? But when somebody comes to you and says the exact same thing, maybe even you know, puts their arm around you or something, says, hey man, why did you do that to me today? It's a whole different thing, isn't it, when you go in person? Here Jesus says, do, me the, or do this person the honor. If you're offended and you've been offended, do the honor of going straight to him and not talking behind his back or her back. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Problem is, in today's America, we don't have relational courage. We don't. We stew and think and mull over the 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 texts that seem to have slighted us, and we won't go and talk to people about it. Here, Jesus says, you want to lay honor upon people? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Just you and him, not the outside world. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he won't hear, take with you two or more witnesses, two or more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. This is the pattern for church discipline within the church. Now, brothers. Later, in a different place, Paul says, deliver him out to the world, throw him out of the church. Okay. <laughs> don't, don't get too fired up about that. What I want you to say is, when I lay honor upon somebody, I come to them directly as a brother who loves them, and is not trying to win an argument. I'm just trying to resolve what's going on in love. The Bible says, if somebody sinned against you, it says it in Galatians, go and gently restore a brother. Not forcefully, not aggressively, not out of anger, but out of love. Not to win the argument, but to win the brother. You You get that? Love covering a multitude of sins. What should we be doing to rebuke other people? Lay honor upon them by doing them the right thing and going to them directly. Not through text, not through DMs, not through emails, face to face. Okay? So if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. You know what one badge of the world is? Come on, folks. Retaliation. Just watch an NBA game or an NFL game. It's the, you know, I mean, what do they do to each other? They hit each other and they talk trash and they act like they're real tough after they make a basket. I, dude, the other team's going to make some baskets too or a dunk. Relax. It's all about retaliation and retribution. If the world's badge is retaliation, see, the Christian's badge is forgiveness. You want to do an immediate check on your Christianity? Think about how forgiving you are. Because here, the Bible says, if he repents, forgive him. And you go, "Okay, that's cool. But if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, I don't have to do that, right, Lord? And the Bible says, you shall forgive him. If he does it seven times, you say, You know, one of the disciples said, wait a minute, seven times? Like, like okay, I'll just go to seven and I'll quit. And Jesus said, no, 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 470. Just, you have to be willing to forgive. Why is that, by the way? What happens if they're sinning the same thing? Forgiveness, 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 forgiveness. You say, well, they don't seem repentant. Well, that ain't up to you. That's up to Jesus he's the one that knows the heart. Now, by the way, time out for a second. Let's come out of the sermon in a minute, for a minute. Are you allowed to set boundaries with people? Oh, yeah, of course. Do you need to be safe with people? We're not talking about abuse here or anything like that. If you're being abused and that sort of thing, get out and get safe. So we're, so just so you know, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the normal sins and slights of life. Okay? Here Seven times? Because the rabbis used to teach, if you forgive three times, you are a perfect person. Jesus said, now double it, add one for the number of perfection. The apostles said, well, that ain't good enough for us. What about, can we just do seven? No, Jesus said, you just keep forgiving. Here he says, if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times in a day return to you, I repent. You shall forgive him. Now, what is forgiveness? Let's talk about it. If you've been slighted or offended and somebody comes to you and they don't say, I'm sorry, by the way. Don't say you're sorry. Because when you say you're sorry, there's always a but with it, which means you're not really sorry. Ask for forgiveness. I did this and I'm asking you for forgiveness. When we forgive somebody, you know what we're doing? We're surrendering our desire to get even with the one who hurt us. We're we're, we're, we're surrendering that. There is some righteous anger that might come initially in these things. But what happens is if it's not righteous, you can tell it because we start to develop negative attitudes towards the offender. Now, wait a minute. Time out again. Think Monty Williams. Ephesians 4, 31 through 32 says this. Listen to this. And it's in the context of unforgiveness or forgiveness. Let all bitterness, wrath and anger, clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Malice means thinking about it beforehand. You know that thing when somebody slights you, they sit in your seat at church, you're like... Okay, you did it once. I'm going to file it away and I'm going to get you. That's malice. And you're lying if you're saying you've never done that. You ate my donut. I'm going to spit on it next time. <laughs> it says then be kind to one another instead of that, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Listen, here it here it comes. Here's the key. Even as God in Christ forgave you even as Christ forgave you or God in Christ forgave you the the phrase there in Ephesians 4 is i want you to be a continual habitual forgiver That's what the Greek means. Colossians 3.13 says, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another. Even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. Now listen, you're thinking, hold on, you started us out in Palm Sunday. I want some Palm Sunday stuff, man. There couldn't be anything more Palm Sunday-ish than this. Because all of your life, in every area of your life, the answer to the problem is the cross of Jesus Christ. And Jesus knows you're going to go preach it, the cross, but one of the things that you must do to be a disciple of the preaching or or of Jesus through the preaching of the cross is you must wear the cross. You must die to self. And that takes a spirit of humility and pride. And as we remember that everything's rooted in what Christ did for you, y- y- do you ever think to yourself all the things that you've committed against the Lord and he's forgo- forgiven them? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Astounding. You know what we do in forgiveness? We let go of personal retaliation. We don't, we don't put aside Receiving restitution, folks, you can still forgive and receive restitution. Somebody ran through your car, and it was your only car. I forgive the person, but, I mean, you're going to take the insurance money, right? You don't reject restitution. You don't even reject the consequences in the law if somebody does something really serious to you. Like Monty Williams. But he forgave. The guy still went to court, folks. So the Bible here is calling us to forgive as God forgives. And the Bible says that God remembers your sins no more. Now, am I telling you to forgive and forget? That's not what I'm telling you. What I am telling you, though, is, because I don't think you can forget, to be honest with you. But what I am telling you is the forgiveness of the Lord doesn't hold our sins against us. So when you forgive somebody, you've given up the right to punish them, Actually, you didn't have the right to punish them, but you know what I'm saying. To retaliate and all those negative feelings, and you're also saying, I'm not going to count that against you anymore. I'm just going to leave it up to the Lord. The verb for forgive, you might be saying move on, but I don't think so. And the reason I don't think so is because people are jammed up in forgiveness and unforgiveness. We have a tough time both giving forgiveness and receiving forgiveness, if that makes sense, right? When we're the offender, we have a tough time admitting it. When we've been offended, it's very difficult uh, for us to then go and, uh, uh, you know, to forgive somebody else. It's very, very hard. But the, the verb says this, to pardon, to remit as an offense or debt, to overlook an offense, to treat the offender as not guilty. The proper phase is to forgive the offense. This is what it means in the Greek, to send it away, to reject it, not to impute it to the offender, not to count it against him. Now listen to this. The definition of forgiveness in the Greek just begs the question, is there somebody you need to forgive? Is there somebody you need to ask for forgiveness from? As Paul said, I read it to you earlier, we should be habitual forgivers. One pastor said this. His name's H.W. Beecher. He said this about forgiveness. Every man or woman should have a fair-sized cemetery in which to bury the faults of his or her friends. That's the Christian. Spurgeon said it this way. He said, Forgive and forget. I don't know that you can forget. But when you bury a mad dog, don't leave his tail above the ground. There's no point in burying a tail or a hatchet if you're going to put a marker up to mark the site, right? As in burying the hatchet. Forgiveness. It's central to the Christian theme. And as you become children of God, guess what? You begin to look like God. He's the vine. You're the branch. You're receiving life from Jesus, who's the ultimate forgiver. He died for us. (laughs) Well, go on. You say, please, go on. Well, I can't quite go on yet because I know there's one question you're all asking yourselves. And here's the question. Yeah, okay, you're all saying it. I know you were saying it because I say it. Yeah, okay, if somebody repents, okay, I'll forgive them. That ain't the whole story. What happens if somebody doesn't repent? Are you still able to forgive? Should you still forgive? Well, do you know the story of Joseph in the Bible? Do you know that story? Joseph sold into slavery, thrown down a pit, left to die by his very brothers because they were jealous because dad loved them more than uh, loved him more than they. In fact, got a really cool coat for his birthday and they couldn't handle it. And he gets sold into slavery and taken down into Egypt and he becomes a real prominent person in the cabinet of Pharaoh, like a right-hand person. And Through a number of circumstances, you know the story, the brothers and the family need to go down into Egypt. They think the brother's dead. Dad thinks the brother's dead. They go down into Egypt because there's a famine and they need some food and they go into Pharaoh's court, and you know the story. Finally, Joseph's brothers figured it out. Uh, They were told that this one who holds their life, so to speak, in their hands is their brother. And what do they become? They become really fearful And Joseph says to them, hey, don't be afraid. And here's something really important that you need to know on forgiveness. Am I in the place of God? Joseph had forgiven his brothers and they never repented. Am I in the place of God? And in Romans 12, 19 it says, don't take revenge my friends. Vengeance is the Lord's. You need to know this doctrine. I need to remember this doctrine that it's the realm of God, the Father, to give revenge, or to uh, give retribution, or to judge people. It's not my job, or your job. So before his brothers had gotten here, listen to this, somehow, some way, Joseph had settled it in his heart. Many people nowadays would hold this grudge for 30, 40 years, or more. He says, hey, don't be afraid, I'm not God. He recognized that God had the authority in the area of judgment. Can, here, here's the question we're trying to ask or answer. Listen, listen. Am I able to forgive? Should I forgive people who don't repent? I believe the answer is yes. You know one thing. You know that God is judge. But then Joseph knew something else. It's a very famous scripture. You know it. That God was in control of his life, not his brothers, not his dad, in fact, Joseph says to his brothers, you folks intended this to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. The sa- and listen, he actually says the saving of many lives. That's in Genesis fifty twenty. Here, Joseph confesses that God and not his offenders are the Lord of his circumstances. You get that? They clearly were the ones who committed... Uh, sin against him, but he even recognized that God was sovereign over those evil actions, just like in Esther. He took those things and used it for the good. Hebrews 12, 7, you can look it up after the service. When we forgive, it's great to recognize that he's the Lord of our circumstances and not the person who offended us. Is it possible for you to forgive, even when the person doesn't repent, oh yeah. In the context of your relationship with the Lord, He's the judge, He's in control, He's sovereign. But here's another thing: God forgave our sins. Forgive each other, just as God in Christ forgave you. I read it to you earlier, Ephesians four. So when you surrender, or when uh, uh, you're offended, when you are offended. Take those attitudes of revenge and negative and all those things. Recognize God has authority over this area. Remember that he has control and that my sins were forgiven. And when that takes place in the uh, uh, context of your relationship with the Lord, just ask the Lord to take those feelings and put them away. Hold on, folks. Monty Williams did it. Now, listen, just another sidebar. I believe there's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. If I did something heinous at home or bad to my wife, and she kicked me out of the house and she was justified in doing it, and that was on a Friday, just really bad stuff. And you know, it was Friday and I'm starting to feel bad, and I go back and I'm really repentant or whatever. And I come back to her and I say, Saturday morning, okay, I'm sorry. Or even, I f- forgive me, please. Can I come back? See, forgiveness takes one. Reconciliation, humanly, takes two. You know what she's going to say to me? Listen, man, the thing you did, that's going to take me some time. I've got to think about it. And I'm going to see over a period of time if what you're saying to me now is real in your life. I don't know when. I don't know how. But as I look at the things you've done and recognize that you've asked for forgiveness, I need some time, you're going to have to stay out of the house. That's reconciliation. But still, in the context of her relationship with the Lord she can still get rid of all the retaliation feelings. You catching what I'm saying? Forgiveness and reconciliation, two different things. I'm convinced of it. Okay, you're saying, get on with it, bro. Well, I don't know. (laughs) Get on with it. My wife and I used to go to uh, with the kids every year, every summer, to a Christian conference center in Sandy Cove or Northeast Maryland, a called, place called Sandy Cove. Okay? It's a family camp for kids. It's a Christian family camp. It was beautiful because we didn't have any family here in Pittsburgh. So don't don't listen to this if you're one of my children. But we would go and they were little, so we had nobody to watch the kids, mostly her. So we would eat our breakfast in the morning, then they'd have from morning time till noon with their teachers. Oh, it was so great. (laughs) But during the time they were doing the stuff with their teachers and the fun stuff, we would listen to great teaching. And then, by the way, by the way, From 12 to 5, we all played together, and it was so much fun. So we had family time. And then later in the evening, they'd go back and play with their classes and stuff, do some fun stuff, and we'd listen to more speakers. But in all my time of going there, and I think we went nine years, I think. Jan will tell me different when I get down from here. But in all my time of going here, there was one class that still sticks with me. And it sticks with me, not only because of what he taught on, forgiveness and unforgiveness, but what struck me about it was how riveted the whole camp was of adults. You could sincerely tell that people were struggling and were jammed up and were having toxic things in their life, bitterness and anger and malice, because they couldn't forgive or they couldn't receive forgiveness. And they were riveted. So I'm convinced as we close this, there are people here who need this today. There's somebody maybe out there that's offended you. <laughs> maybe they don't even know they offended you and they're not repentant. I believe in the context of your relationship with the Lord, you still can forgive them, even if they don't repent. Maybe somebody has repented and you refuse to forgive. Forgive. You say, well, who will get back? Who's going to get him? I don't want to give up that feeling of getting him or her. That's the Lord's. That's the Lord's. Let it go to the Lord to allow him to judge this person, and then ask the Holy Spirit to give you relational courage to go give them the honor of talking to them. See, Nothing could be better for Palm Sunday. Jesus died and we've been forgiven. <laughs> the Bible tells us that when you recognize you've been forgiven much, you'll forgive much, you'll love much. But if you recognize you've been forgiven little, eh, your forgiving life be pretty shallow. <laughs> He died for us and now he's asking us by his power and resource during the battle to stay on mission of saving souls. And one of the great things that jams people up in life is they get sidetracked because they can't forgive or they can't receive forgiveness. He's saying, do it today. Be a forgiver. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do. We come here and we ask for your blessing. We ask, Lord, that you would give give us the strength and resource, the ability to talk with people directly and lovingly, to gently do it, to do it circumspectly, to take the log out of our own eye before we wipe a piece of sawdust out of somebody else's. Help us here, Lord. We need your help. Help us to live out by your Spirit Ephesians 4 in terms of forgiveness so that we can stay on mission. In Jesus' name, amen.